Congregation, we're about to open God's word together at Judges and at Ruth. But before we do that, let's go to God and ask for his blessing over the opening of his word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are about to open our Bibles. We're about to read a portion, two portions from the Old Testament. Father, we know that if your word is going to be more to us than just another book, if your word is going to be more than just ink on a page, we know that we need the presence of your spirit among us this morning too. And so, Father, that's our prayer, that you be present among us now in our hearts so that, Lord, we truly hear what you are saying to us. And, Lord, where there is perhaps some resistance within our hearts, where there perhaps are walls built around our hearts, we pray that you powerfully break through so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be heard loud and clear. Help us this morning, Lord, to see where sin can lead. But help us, Lord, also to see and to appreciate the wonderful and incredible grace that you show to sinners like us. Father, we thank you that, as we'll see, redemption is always possible. Father, help us to hear that gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's then take up our Bibles and turn to the book of Judges. And we want to read from chapter 2. And this part of Judges, Judges 2, 6 through 23, gives us a, a good sense, a description of the period of time in which the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth occurs. Because it's the opening verses of Ruth that form our text for the sermon this morning. So we go first of all to Judges chapter 2 and we begin reading at verse 6. So congregation at this point the Israelites had crossed the river, they're in the promised land Verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Haraz in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them 
and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them all the na- any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So far from Judges, the very next book in your Bibles is Ruth. And that's where we go for our text for the sermon this morning, Ruth 1, 1 through 5. Ruth 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons were Melon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Melon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So far our text. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, there are many both fiction and non-fiction stories about, say, survival during the Second World War. 
And each of those stories is unique and compelling in its own way. You can read many of them and enjoy and learn from them all. And yet, in each of those stories, if it's about the Second World War, for example, the basic setting is the same, the horrors experienced are similar, and the outcome, if it's a survival story, is thankfully the same too. You might say the story of any one of those survivors is then, in a sense, the story of them all. Well, congregation, this morning we have before us a story about one family. But you can be sure this story and various versions of it were played out hundreds, perhaps even thousands of times in that period known as the period of the Judges. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has seen fit to include in the Bible this one family's story. Not because it in itself is particularly unique, but because this story shows the wonder of God's redemption for all sinners. A redemption so necessary for every single family of that time. A redemption congregation that your story and my story needs too. And so this story is the story of so many, really it's the story of every single child of God. And yet, there is something particularly unique about this one story of redemption, because the redemption in this one story makes possible the coming of Christ, the one who is so necessary for every other story of redemption. To make that clear, and we can see this in more vivid color as you read through the rest of this book, this story, if, congregation, there was no redemption in this story, there would be no redemption for any other family of Israel. There would be no redemption for you and for me. To be more specific, and this will make sense if you're familiar with this story of Ruth and Boaz, if Boaz had not, at God's leading, stepped forward to redeem Naomi and so marry Ruth, Christ would not have come. And if Christ had not come, well, then there's no redemption for anyone. And so to say it again, this story is the story of so many. And yet it is unique. If the Redeemer of that day, Boaz, had not stepped forward, there would be no Redeemer to step forward for you and for me. But before we get to that, we need to understand first the deep need for this redemption. That's really where this narrative story of Ruth begins. So our theme this morning, one covenant family story calls out for redemption. We're going to consider three things this morning. The ominous timestamp of this story, the actions of the family at the center of this story, and finally the emptiness of the woman after the first 10 years of the story. So first of all, the ominous timestamp of this story. Ruth 1 verse 1, it begins this way. In the days when the judges ruled. In the Bible, the book of Ruth is placed, we saw that after Judges, and just before 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel is where you find the appointments and the reigns of Israel's first kings, King Saul, and after him, King David. 
But the fact congregation that Ruth is between those two books does not mean that it comes after Judges. We need to keep in mind that this story happened during, says verse 1, during the time of the Judges. We don't know exactly when, but that isn't particularly relevant either. We do know what characterised the time period of the Judges, and our scripture reading made that very clear. Let's quickly in our Bibles, maybe you want to do this with me so you can follow along, and go back to Judges 2, our scripture reading. And we want to make sure, congregation, that we understand well, understand properly the ominous time stamp at the beginning of our text in the days when the Judges rule. What we're trying to understand is this, what was it really like to live in the time of Ruth? Well, Judges 2, verse 10. Notice that first verse, that verse, first of all, Judges 2 verse 10. When Joshua, he's the leader of, who led the people into the promised land, he led them through that time of conquest. When Joshua and the elders immediately after him had all died, the next generation, says verse 10 of Judges 2, did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That's the end of the verse. No, that does not mean, congregation, that they had never physically heard the stories about the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan or any one of the other mighty acts of God during the wilderness journey. They had likely heard all of those stories, but they suffered from a sort of spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten. They were spiritually lazy. Those stories of redemption really didn't do much for them anymore. Why not? Well, look at verse 11 of Judges 2. They fell in love with different gods, Baal for one, which meant, if you look at verse 12, that they abandoned the Lord. They started, verse 13, bowing down to other gods. They got caught up in the culture of the day, and who of us doesn't know how easy that is to do? They no longer lived antithetical lives, lives distinct and different from the nations around them. Today we would say, this way congregation, we would say the church essentially became one with the world, was indistinguishable from the world. And yet God is gracious, he always is, so verse 16 of Judges 2 Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. But again, they didn't listen, says verse 17. But still God uses the judges to restore a measure of peace. Consider here, congregation, the grace of our God. Verse 18, the second part of the verse. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. How did they respond to God's pity? Well, verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. And so, congregation, on and on and on it went. The story of Ruth happens in that sort of setting. And if you go to Ruth 1 and go back one verse, you end up in Judges 21, verse 25, and Judges 21 verse 25 says it this, this way, In those days there was no king in Israel, and then this, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What's more, the ominous time note or the ominous time stamp of our text adds this, 
The first one we just looked at in the days when the judges ruled, we know what that was like now. But there's a second time stamp. There was a famine in the land. We need congregation to take careful note of the connection between when the judges ruled and there was a famine in the land. Because, understand this well, that is a covenantal connection. Because we know now when the judges ruled means that God's people by and large did what was right in their own eyes. And in covenantal terms, that means that they had abandoned the God of the covenants. And that congregation, that has covenantal consequences. For example, let me read for you Leviticus 26, verse 19. And I will break the pride of your power, and I'll make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze. Famine in the Old Testament is God turning the heavens to iron and the earth to bronze because of the pride of his people. Or just go and read a passage like Deuteronomy 28 verse 15 and following and you'll know that when Ruth 1 verse 1 tells us that there was a famine in the land, we need to know then that's God's covenantal response to his people's covenantal unfaithfulness. God is punishing his covenant breakers. More, he's testing them to see if they will walk in his ways or not. That was Judges 2 verse 22. But alas, we know they are failing that test. The last part of the last verse of Judges once more, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So are we seeing congregation already now, even before we join Elimelech and Naomi on their track to Moab, are we seeing now, already before we get into the nitty-gritty of this story, how this timestamp right at the beginning of Ruth's story is highlighting the desperate need for redemption? See, God's people are a lost people. The Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 1, speaks about the effect of the fall. It says this, but rebelling, and I'm quoting now, but rebelling against God through the instigation of the devil and through his own free will, he, that's the human race, deprived himself of these excellent gifts and instead brought upon himself blindness, horrible darkness, futility and perverseness of judgment in his mind, wickedness, rebelliousness, stubbornness in his will and heart and impurity in all his affections. That congregation, that's where God's people are at. We said before, this story is really everyone's story. It's yours, it's mine too. That means that apart from Christ's Spirit at work in us, that damning description that we just read from the canons of Dort, apart from Christ's work in us, that's you and that's me. Are we hearing... In this story already, the clear call for a very necessary redemption. Well, congregation, that's, that call only gets louder and more distinct the more we get into the story. We come to our second point. Famine is not easy. 
You and I, living as we do today, can't imagine what famine is like. But it was very real for this man, for his wife, and for their two boys. If Elimelech, that man of the story, if he remembered at all his Bible lessons from school, he would have known what famine meant. Deuteronomy 28 again, or Leviticus 26, famine is God punishing his people's covenantal unfaithfulness. But how does this man from Bethlehem respond to this punishment? Well, he, jumping back to Judges 21 verse 25, this man makes a right in his own eyes decision. A decision which necessitated him to put aside the God of the covenant and his God's demands. Goes on verse 1 of our text, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Oh, you can be sure not everybody took off to Moab in the face of this famine, but you can also be sure, congregation, that this man and his family were not the only ones. This story is undoubtedly the story of so many. Which means that we need to pause and ask this question. Is this your story? What I mean is this, what right in your own eyes decisions have you made lately? What choices have you made in the last little while that made it necessary for you, given the choice you made, to put aside the loving demands of the God of the covenant? Do you see how that first decision of this man here in our text makes clear his need for redemption? And do we understand, congregation, that every right in our own eyes decisions that we make illustrates yet again our need for a redeemer? Because what does this man do in the face of famine? He leaves. He leaves from where? He leaves the covenant community and he takes his family with him. He goes, says verse 1, to sojourn in the country of Moab. He's moving to a different country, but he cannot even ask for a transfer of membership because the place to which he's going doesn't even have a church. He's moving out from underneath the wings of the covenant God and he's entrusting himself and his family to the supposed gods of Moab. He figures he's got a better chance of survival away from the covenant community. He figures he's going to do better with the gods of Moab than with the God of his fathers. Oh, at this point, he's just thinking it's a temporary thing. He's going, says verse 1, to sojourn. It's just for a little while. It won't be too long. Don't ever, brothers and sisters, decide to live in sin for just a little while. If you ever make that sort of decision, there's a huge need for redemption, for rescue. But that's exactly what this man does. He decides to sin for a little while. And then notice, and this really highlights the gravity of what this man decided to do, Notice how our text tells us not once but twice 
where this man is from. The narrator of Ruth is highlighting something. Verse 1 tells us that this is a man of Bethlehem in Judah. And in the middle of verse 2, it's there for the second time. They were Ephrathites and then from Bethlehem in Judah. Not only did they leave the covenant community, they left the area of the covenant community allotted to Judah. That's where they lived because they were of the tribe of Judah. And what do we know? Maybe boys and girls, you know this. What do we know about that tribe, Judah? God had promised that Judah was in the line of promise. That's Genesis 49, if you want to check. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then next in line in terms of covenantal promise is Judah. This man divorces himself and his family from the line of promise. Maybe he said to himself, yeah, I know, but it's only temporary, remember, just, just going to leave to sojourn for a little while. It's no big deal, really. No big deal. Not only did he leave Judah, he left, says our text, Bethlehem. At this point of its history, Bethlehem didn't have the significance it would have later on. But that doesn't detract from the significance of the name of that town, Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Maybe, just picture it if you like, they had it on a billboard as you drove into town. Welcome to Bethlehem, God's bread basket. Except, of course, there wasn't any bread at any of the local bakeries. That smell of freshly baked bread hadn't tickled the noses of the Bethlehemites for months, maybe years. That's because there was no wheat in any of the farmers' grain bins, which was because there was a famine, which was because of the covenant unfaithfulness of God's covenant people. So what does this man do? Is he making the connection between the absence of the smell of freshly baked bread and his and his fellow covenant members' unfaithfulness? Is he perhaps in his room on his knees, repenting of his sins and asking God to send redemption to his town, to his tribe, to his people? Has he engaged in mutual discipline, gone to visit all the farmers to point out to them that their bronze-like fields and their iron-like sky mean they need to turn back to the God of the covenant in repentance? Is he next going to visit all the bakers in town, asking them to reflect on, on why their tills are not overflowing with the loose change from all the kids who've come through after school to buy a donut? After all, congregation, his name is Elimelech. A name which means God is king or God is my king. Is he, Elimelech, standing up for his king? No. He's not doing any of those things just mentioned. End of verse 2. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Leaving the covenant community, the town known as God's breadbasket, Bethlehem, the tribe of promise, Judah, they leave 
and they remain in Moab. Notice the change in language between verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1, he went to sojourn, but it didn't take very long before sojourn turned into remain there. That congregation recognized this is the progression of sin. And where did he remain? He remained in Moab. That choice only serves to highlight the incredibly need, deep need for redemption in this story. Moab, that nation of people that resulted from Lot's incestuous relationship with one of his daughters, that's Genesis 19. Moab, that country which had sought to curse God's people as they made their way to the promised land, that's Numbers 22 through 24. Moab, that nation that sent out its good-looking girls to seduce Israel's men, that's Numbers 25. Moab congregation, Moab, that's where God is my king, that's where Elimelech chooses to go. And he takes along his wife and his two boys. But what happens? Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Notice, congregation, how the author is switching from Elimelech as the main character to Naomi as the main character. Now Elimelech becomes the husband of Naomi. And so we have to ask now... What is Naomi, now head of her family, her husband has died, what is Naomi now going to do? Does she reverse her husband's decision and rush back into the arms of her covenant God with her two sons that are still left to her at that point? It was the two sons, after all, who, according to the Old Testament law, were now to provide for their widowed mother, does she understand, congregation, the tra tragic consequences of her husband's decision? Or was his right in his own eyes decision also her right in her own eyes decision? Is she going to pack up her sons and her meager belongings to head back to God's breadbasket and seek redemption where it can actually be found? Well, congregation, the tragic answer is no. Instead, verse 4, the two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. And then notice this, congregation, end of verse 4, they lived there about 10 years. Do you remember? Where did we start? We started with sojourn. That was verse 1. Then we had remained. That was verse 2. And now we're at verse 4 and we have lived there. Do you recognize what that is, congregation? That's the, that's the downward spiral of sin. That's the downward spiral of covenantal rejection. It never, ever goes any place good. Says the end of verse 4, they lived there about 10 years. Has any one of your my right in our own eyes decisions gone from sojourn to remain to live there oh you're you're here in church this morning and you have perhaps no intention of going anywhere but but if this story is 
If this story is your story and this story is my story, then we all need to be asking ourselves, is there anything in my life, is there anything in my life that translates to living there in sin? And to, that, to answer that question, we don't have to start thinking about what we might call, quote-unquote, big sins. Are you living there in your discontent with life? Have you perhaps gone from sojourn to remain to live there with the bitterness you feel towards others? Have you perhaps gone from sojourning to remaining to living there? in the way that you treat your kids, perhaps? Do we, do we understand how our lives too call out so loudly for a redeemer? This story is so much our story. And as if the need for redemption and rescue isn't already clear enough, Things in our text go even further downhill. Verse 5, and both Melon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We come to our third point. Verse 5, so that the woman. Did you notice, congregation, when we read this? So that the woman, she's become nameless. It's not Naomi anymore. It's not even Mara, as she later wants people to call her. It's just the woman. The divine author of Scripture wants us to know that with her two sons now dead, this line of Israel's family tree is also now dead. And we need to notice too that neither Melon nor Chilion had had children. It really is true, the name Naomi, which probably means pleasant, at this point, this name is not even worth mentioning. That tree of Israel's family is all but dead and it will totally die out when Naomi passes away. There will then be no opportunity for this part of Israel's family tree to be the bearer of the promised one. Recognize the gravity of verse 5 so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is it, congregation. You can't go any lower. This is really the end of the line. Is redemption, we need to ask then, is redemption from this low, is redemption from, from this empty even possible? Is any redeemer going to step forward for the woman? Here she is in a foreign land, there in Moab, without any of the inbuilt protections that her presence in the covenant community would have provided her. In Bethlehem, God's breadbasket, there would at least have been the possibility of someone else from a Elimelech's family stepping forward to continue the family name. 
In Bethlehem, God's breadbasket, Naomi would at least have had the possibility of financial support from gleaning the fields, a law that required landowners to not harvest the corners of their fields so that the poor could be fed. But in Moab, in Moab, the woman is just that, the woman, an empty, nameless female who has just run out of hope. And again, congregation, the, the woman should not have been surprised at how bad things had become. Her husband's decision to divorce his family from the covenant community, then his death, then the two boys marrying foreign non-covenant women, then their death. Congregation, once more, the last words of our text, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It means this, this woman is, is empty, she has nothing and she has no hope for anything either. And again, there should be no surprise here. This is very clearly laid out as a consequence of covenant unfaithfulness. Really, congregation, we could put it this way, we should not be surprised, we shouldn't have been surprised if the book of Ruth consisted just of Ruth 1, 1 through 5. But it doesn't. It doesn't. And that's the real surprise. The surprise here is that there's more to the story. You see, this story, our story too, calls very loudly for redemption. And when we, through our own fault, have made ourselves so low, when we, through our own faults, have brought upon ourselves the consequences of doing what's right in our own eyes, when we, congregation, are at rock bottom and all that's left is that man or that woman, the very real, noteworthy, praiseworthy, the real glorious surprise is this. Redemption is still possible. Because Naomi, brothers and sisters, does not remain nameless. Her namelessness is but a sojourn. Being the woman is nothing more than temporary. That's because when Naomi, as one author put it, came to see the emptiness of the fields of Moab, or to make it personal for you and I, when we come to see the emptiness of the sin in which we are living, then we turn in faith to the Redeemer. We turn to the Redeemer for redemption. And note well that you and I can do that is because Naomi's story does not end with her. For her too, yes, from way down there, for her too, there is redemption. Praise God. And because there is redemption for her, there will be born from out of this story a son who will ultimately be her redeemer. And who is that redeemer? Well, we all know the answer to that. It's the one who never ever did what was right in his own eyes, but always did what was right in his father's eyes. He did what he needed to do so that when you, congregation, or I are empty, and low 
And when we then call out for grace, call out for redemption, he will stretch out his hand right down to where you are dead and empty. And he will say, I emptied myself, doing what was right in my father's eye. Because my father knows you by name. And he says, you are mine. Redemption. What a glorious gift. Amen. Let us, let us pray. Father in heaven, how grateful we are. It doesn't matter how low, how broken we can be. It doesn't matter, Lord, if we feel like we're at that point where we're nothing more than that man or that woman, that boy or that girl. Redemption is always possible. Father, thank you that you sent your Son, who is our Redeemer. Help us then, help every one of us to treasure this most precious of gifts. For Lord, we know that your faithfulness soars to the skies. We know in faith, even if we don't always feel it, we know in faith that it doesn't matter how estranged we may become from you, given our own sin, given our own brokenness, redemption is always possible. Father, what a gospel and what a blessing to have this faith worked in our hearts by your Spirit. To you belongs all the glory and all the praise. Amen.